Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast where hospitality and travel professionals learn how to earn the media spotlight. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning public relations agency in New York City. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, a food and beverage writer and editor-in-chief at Hannah Lee Communications. As a PR professional myself and Michael as a journalist, we understand the power of media coverage and its impact on someone's career and business. So each week, we interview top journalists who share their insights and tips. In this episode, we chat with Ray Isle, who's executive wine editor of Food and Wine and wine and spirits editor for both travel and leisure and departures. He's a frequent guest on national media like NBC's Today Show, NPR's All Things Considered, and American Public Media's Splendid Table. Hi, Ray. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Stop. Thrilled to be here. Nice to see you. No, nice to hear you too, Michael. <laughs> the the feeling is quite mutual. You know, you're someone who sports two very impressive titles. Uh, you're at Food and Wine as the executive wine editor, and you're also the wine and spirits editor at Travel and Leisure. You know, given your your broad portfolio uh, and your perspective, what do you think makes covering wine different than covering spirits? The truth is, a lot of spirits aren't that interesting to write about. You know. They're industrially produced. There's no vintage variation. You know, there's not too much to write about what comes out of a column still. Uh, that said, there are there are some spirits that are fascinating to write about. You know, single malt scotch, for instance, is fascinating. Um, bourbon could be fascinating. Mezcal is completely wild and, and extremely interesting. And I just wrote something on that. I think that because there are so many grape varieties and so many regions producing wine and so much difference of detail between the thousands and thousands of wines that are out there, it's a different kind of thing to write about. I mean, compared to say vodka, which often is just a, a marketing platform and a flavorless alcohol and a, and a fancy looking bottle. But that, you know, that doesn't mean there's not great spirits to write about. And cocktails are certainly fascinating. And that heads more towards what it's like to write about, in a sense, to write about cooking. You know, cocktails are a form of take more from the chef world in some sense. But um, my first love is wine. That's pretty clear. You know, you, you write about pairing wine with food, but also spirits with food. And I think, you know, a lot of folks are probably less familiar with that. So what would you say are some good basic ground rules for approaching pairing spirits and food? Well, you know, I think straight spirits can be hard to pair with food just because of the alcohol level. I mean, and this is true for anybody who tastes spirits. You may, you, you typically, you know, if you're, if you work in a distillery, for instance, and you're tasting spirits, you almost always dilute, you know, 50%. You're looking more for flaws. Um, and so doing an entire meal with full strength spirits can be kind of exhausting in some way. I think doing one course can be fascinating. I think doing cocktails with, with a meal can be fantastic, you know, and because you've got so much room to move in some sense, in terms of, of the strength of the drink, in terms of the, you know, the level of bitterness or level of sourness or level of sweetness. And that makes it a much more kind of complex and compelling way to pair with food. Um, on some level, I think if you think about just having like, you know, a shot of scotch and a big plate of pasta, it kind of doesn't really make that much sense. Um, 
But when you start to think about what you could do with a Negroni variation and a seafood pasta or something, it starts to seem like that might be more fun mm -hmm. and possibly less lethal too. <laughs> yeah, totally. And over the you know, last several months of a lockdown, people have been drinking a lot more at home, including ourselves here. Mm -hmm. So did you notice any unusual wine or varietals that surprised you? Are people getting more adventurous or... I mean, what, what, what's happened with the wine market is that, you know, usually the wine market divides between on-premise and off-premise, between restaurant and retail. Um, the restaurant market for wines, obviously because of what's happened to restaurants, has been minimal over the past six months. And it's it's a disaster. I mean, there's no question. The retail market has actually been doing gangbusters, <laughs> you know, as a result, because yes. everybody's at home. Mm -hmm. People are cooking and they're drinking at home. Um, but from talking to retailers, I think, and I think it's a little bit of the same psychology at the moment. What a lot of retailers say is that people are sticking to what they know, that they're, that they're less adventurous than they would normally be. Hmm. I think that's because there's so much uncertainty in all other regards that people like, <laughs> if you're worried that you may walk outside and catch a disease and die, you, you may just think like, I'm just going to drink the wine that I normally drink. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to go out on a limb. But the other thing that I, that I do think is though plays into this is that through restaurants, wine servers, and sommeliers is an avenue towards opening people's minds to a lot of different varieties. That one-to-one that, that mm -hmm. -one interaction mm -hmm. is one of the best ways to get people psyched about something new. And so restaurants have always been a an avenue for the you know, everything from when I was at Wine Spirits from, you know, Gruner Veltliner started starting to take off to natural wine starting to take off to orange wine starting to take off to um, the Jura to all these tends to come down through the restaurant world, at least in my experience. And so if you subtract that avenue from the past six months, you lose you lose a lot. You obviously lose affect people's lives and jobs and all that, but you lose mm -hmm. one of the big ways that people learn about wine. Yeah, I mean, sh shelf talkers at retail just can't take the place of a charming sommelier. Yeah, and that's not to say that there there are great retailers who talk to people and, and hand sell things and so on. But a lot of people just come into a store and head towards the Chardonnay aisle and buy what they know they like. And uh, who knows what will come out of this? But I haven't heard a lot about any new region or or recently rediscovered region taking off during this era. But on, on a related note. It, Obviously, Zoom happy hours have been uh, <laughs> yeah. one of the big cultural shifts. Yeah. And actually, a lot of, uh, you know, wine producers and spirits producers are, are hosting virtual tastings mm -hmm. via Zoom. So we were wondering, do you think these virtual tastings will persist after the pandemic? I think for sure they're going to persist for pe for regular people. You know, it's it's I think it's been a kind of discovery for me as well as uh, for a lot of people that you can, you know, hang out with your family by means of a Zoom call when you normally just see them at Thanksgiving and Christmas or something like that. And it's easy and low, you know, low effort. I, I doubt it will go away. It may, it may not be quite as frequent, but it's sort of like, wow, there's no lift here. And it's a lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. I think with wineries, I suspect it will also keep going because I think it's a good way to interact with your customers who are not present where you are. I think some of the, I think one reason that wineries have been able to do this, um, is that some of the resources and, and manpower or women power, you know, people power that they would normally put towards tasting rooms or in-person interaction is now being done via virtually. And so when in-person stuff comes back full strength, which I believe it will, and I certainly hope it's soon, you know, you'll probably see some of that thin out just because of, of lack of time. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes hand in hand. You know, there's been a, from what I understand, there's been an uptick as well in people buying 
online, not just bricks and mortar, but, but you know, things like wine.com sales have gone through the roof during this period. And I don't think that's going to go anyway either. I think people realize how, you know, as long as you're in a state that allows it, it's actually pretty right. easy to order online. And it's so convenient. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's an interesting quandary. Yeah, totally. So um, earlier you mentioned Mezcal. Yes. And um, both Michael and I are a huge fan of all things Mezcal. So it was great to see your top 10 mm -hmm. picks. And thank you so much for including Sombra Mezcal, which is one of our favorites. I mean, what I regret is that normally doing that story, I would have almost certainly have gone to Oaxaca. And mm -hmm. in the current era, in the time frame when I was doing that story, there was no chance I could go to Oaxaca. Um, and I want to, also wanted to rely on, I mean, I am a wine, I know a lot about wine. I know a fair amount about mezcal, but there are people out there who know a lot more than me. And that's a story where I wanted to pull in voices from people who know, who really, really deeply know mezcal, like like Yana Volson at Cosme right. or you know, Gonzalo Gut down in Tecuchi in Mexico City. And it's, it's a utterly fascinating spirit. And agave is an utterly fascinating plant. And yes, the fact that there are so many subspecies of agave and they actually do play into the character of the mezcal makes it a spirit. And, and as, as I can't remember if it's Gonzalo or, or Yana or who I was speaking to, because I talked to a lot of people, but you know, they said that it's, it's one of the only spirits that's made from a, essentially a plant, you know, it's most fair to grain. And, and that plant has variations the way that grapes have variations and and it plays into the character of the mezcal and the production method plays in so it's it actually is a wildly varied complex spirit that you could fall down a very deep rabbit hole on which is a lot like wine well and you you speak about comparing it to wine and obviously wine brings terroir to the equation and with agave some of these plants are in the ground for five years 10 years 15 years so you're even getting more of that essence yeah so you know, obviously, you know, you cover wine, you cover spirits. How has the balance switched or, or changed or evolved during the pandemic? Do you see yourself covering more spirit stories these days, more wine stories? I actually, the percentage for me is about the same. Um, I've been covering, you know, I, I primarily cover wine and then I cover spirits to some degree. And then I farm out beer to other people because that's an entire other vast world. Right. But the thing that has that I have done it has been a lot more coverage of how all of this is affecting the industry and or affecting consumers who are buying wine. So there've been more stories about you know what's happened to restaurants. There's been more stories about you know tasting rooms opening or tasting rooms closing or um, how the tariffs, which are still these ridiculous tariffs that are still in place on imported wines from the EU, are, are affecting everyone down the, the chain in terms of imports. And so I've done more both in terms of editing and writing on topics like that during this pandemic. Because, you know, mm -hmm. typically writing about wine is not a breaking news or a, a news-driven thing. Wine's very slow food, as, you know, as multiple people have said. And this is news. And this is ongoing news that's that's affecting you know, an industry that I care a lot about. Right. Mm -hmm. More and more, there seem to be these urgent issues coming up that need coverage, which doesn't mean you don't do 10 great wines for grilling or entertaining stories or, or deep dives into a specific spirit. But it, that has been a change in terms of the percentage of what I've been writing about. Mm -hmm. So speaking of stories, you know, not only wines and mezcals, but also you write about people, yeah. you know, profiling interesting people like winemakers and sommeliers and sometimes celebrities. What makes you write about these folks? You know, people are fascinating. They're a great subject to write about. And 
for me, there are wine critics and there are wine writers. There are people who rate wines and and so on. And there are people like me who I consider myself a journalist more than a, a critic. Um, and so I write stories. Mm-hmm. But what fascinates me is more the story behind the wine. And the story behind the wine often involves people. And it almost, I mean, it always involves people right. in some context. There is no wine without people. You just have grapes that fall mm-hmm. on the ground. But often the people in the wine world and in the spirits world are, are truly fascinating. And you want to know what drives them and what their inspiration is and what what makes them work the way they do or have the vision that they have about their wines. And you also have the history of the place and the history of the region and so on. But but all this stuff combines into storytelling, which is to some degree what I, what I part of my job I love best is about. And you do it so well. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, You do. I mean, it, 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 you know, I, I like to think that you do well the things you love <laughs> and the things you don't yes. love, you make a game effort at and hope that it suffices. Agreed. So um, speaking of passionate people, I mean, Leslie Spracco, <laughs> one of your partner in crime, is one of the most fascinating wine educator in the world. And so you and Leslie um, often on NBC Today show um, showcasing some interesting wines. Yep. <laughs> so how do you choose these wines? And I know a lot of winemakers and wine producers want to be on TV. Yeah. So essentially, I choose wines that I like that fit whatever the theme of the whatever it is whether it's you know today show blindfold wine tasting the the one thing that's tricky about tv is it's it's tough with an audience that big i think to justifiably recommend very tiny production wines because the truth is no one's going to be able to find them so i try to pick things that at least are findable around the country um and the truth is most producers want you to recommend affordable wines that's that's the the tv sort of push. I mean, it, you have to really fight to get more expensive wines on there. And, it, you know, occasionally you do as a splurge for the holidays or something like that. But but there's a lot of, of wanting things to be 20 or under, which is fine. There's a lot of great wine that's 20 bucks and under. You know, my entire career has been trying to get, you know, people who aren't into wine into wine. And the, it's way to get people into wine with 20 buck wine than it is with $400 wine. Would you say the same selection process applies to your online or print stories? Well, it's Interesting. So there's two kinds of stories that I do for print. There are service stories, which are basically roundups of bottles to buy, which fall into, could be, you know, great wines from the Santa Cruz Mountains, could be um, 20 Pinot Noirs for $25. And then there are feature stories, which are larger scale and maybe, you know, it could be a Thanksgiving dinner with someone who's a wine producer. It could be, you know, I did a story for, for Travel Leisure that was kind of a portrait of Walla Walla in Washington that was really about the town as much as it was about the wines. So with those roundups, because of food and wine being food and wine, you know, the circulation is about a million, 960,000, whatever it is. The, the readership is something like six or seven million, according to the mysterious measurements of what readership is. And then online audience is huge, too. And everything I write for print goes to online. So what I try and do is with each column, there's there needs to be a mix of findable, slightly less findable, pricier, less pricey. You want to give people options that are everywhere from you know fifteen bucks to to one hundred and fifty bucks, and I'll probably lean more towards the affordable side because of our audience. Um, but I'll, I always want to sneak in some expensive things and sneak in some things that are smaller producers or upcoming producers. Sneak in something, uh, bring in some things that are more findable and more broadly distributed. So it's a, it's and all of them have to be things that I think are really good too. And then in terms of features that's harder because that's harder to pin down because you never know what it is that's going to make a feature work in advance you never know what idea is going to come up where you're like but well, that sounds great 
that's a really cool story. I mean, I did a a story traveling through the Loire with Pascaline Lepeltier, who's master sommelier. Oh my um, god, she's great. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's amazing. I mean, she's and it, for me, it was like a PhD level class in the Loire. I mean, which I and I know a reasonable amount of mm-hmm. Loire. Pascaline, who grew up there and is a master sommelier and loves the wines of the Loire, knows literally everything there is to know about the Loire. And I wanted to do some kind of story with her for some time, and I didn't know what it was going to be, and I didn't know whether it was going to be a feature or just a short profile or whatever. And and it came to pass that we were actually chatting at one point, and she was going back to the Loire for for some reason, and I mentioned something, and it and it just kind of fell into place that this was going to be a kind of trip through some of the wines that had meant the most to her in her kind of progression as a master sommelier and, and as a person, mm-hmm. and that's how that story came together. So the, the wines that appear in it were really channeled through her because the story is really about her. So that's, that's just one example of how these things come together. Okay. So if there's any like top three advice uh, for our listeners, you know, whether they are sommeliers and winemakers or, you know, wine distributors who want to be featured in your story or in Food and Wine magazine, print or online. So what are the top three things they should remember before emailing you or pitching you? Well, I mean, and this goes for freelance writers too. One is first thing for producers, like just make really, really good wines. It's just like, always good advice. Always good advice. They aren't really good. Then I think I'll pass. Um, the other thing is be aware of what the, what I've already done mm-hmm. online or in print in the past year, year and a half. I mean, cause if we, if literally, if we just did a story about Walla Walla, we're probably not going to do another story about Walla Walla three months later. It's just, there's too much world out there. You know, same sort of thing. If we cover, if we just did a big profile of the chef, we're not going to then do another profile of the same chef. And you'd be, you'd be stunned how many pitches I get saying, you know, I just saw that you did a story on Napa Valley Cabernet. What do you think about doing a story on Napa Valley Cabernet? You're like, well, I, I, did, I did a story on Napa Valley Cabernet. That's, I thought it was, right. I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> I'm glad you thought it was a good idea, but I'm really not going to do another one right after the same one. Um, and then I think, you know, if it's a story, is it a real story? I mean, does it, does it actually a real story? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many pitches I've gotten for, you know, so-and-so decided to change their lives and move out of tech, move to Napa, start a winery and name the wines after the kids. It's like, well, yeah, good for you. So it's like, you know, look, just throw a stone in Napa, you can find a, a billionaire who did that. And that's not a story anymore. It may have been a story the first time. Um, you know, so right. I think there are other interesting stories. But if you if you've seen a lot of stories that are similar to the one you're pitching, there's probably a problem. Right. Yeah. So it's a common sense approach. So now the, the listener question segment of our show, <laughs> uh, we have a question from Doreen Winkler of Orange Clue, a monthly subscription wine club that I'm sure you're familiar with. So she'd like to know if you're a fan of orange wine and do you see them being embraced by mainstream wine drinkers? Yeah, so I am a fan. I mean, you know, as with everything, I think they're good orange wines and not good orange wines. You know, and I and I have had some that I thought were gorgeous, and some that I thought were you know just unappealing. But that's true of all wines. Um, it's obviously a very old way of making wine that has been rediscovered. It was ongoing in Georgia for forever, eight thousand years. Right. It was almost snuffed out by the Soviet you know, USSR, the traditional winemaking in Georgia was in danger of disappearing. Thankfully it survived. And then it was kind of picked up through down through Georgia to Friuli and then kind of disseminated out through the world. And orange wine has, is sort of becoming its own 
category and it, not not it's obviously its own category but it's its own category in terms of what consumers ask for and so mm. people will come in and say i want an orange wine and they wouldn't even necessarily care who the producer was or whether it's well known or not well known they just want to try an orange wine which to me means that that the awareness of the category has managed to spread out beyond the sort of condescendency or the the in the business people mm. and that's fascinating to me and that's kind of a cool thing. Um, essentially, you just have to accept that there are different categories from red or white mm -hmm. and not compare them to either and let your palate adjust to that and just take them on their own measure as this other thing. And once you do that and you get used to it, then you can kind of swim freely in those waters, as it were. You know, it's when you start to say, when you, when you, compare them to other wines in, that are red or white, that it becomes self-defeating in some sense. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I'm, a, I'm personally a huge fan of orange wine, so I've been drinking it for years, and I am the one of the people who goes to the restaurant, do you have orange wine? <laughs> I don't know the producer's name, but do you serve orange wine? So yeah. I am the one of them. Well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of an option for people who don't really love red wine or don't really love white wine, but you get a lot of the characteristics of both. Yeah. And they're great. In an interesting kind of way. And they can be great food wines. I mean, there's no question because it gives you oh, the, yes. the structure of red with you know some of the characteristics of white and some oxidative characteristics often. But when you get someone who's just kind of knows there's wine and knows maybe Cabernet and Pinot Noir and like has heard of orange wine and starts to come in and ask for it, that's that's when a category can, can kind of grow in a big way. I don't think it's going to turn into rosé, but... <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But you, know, right. you never know. Slowly but surely. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Rosé was a dead category for years. Yeah. Look at it now. So, um, Ray, um, we call our show Hospitality Forward because we are genuinely optimistic about our hospitality and travel industry. So, are you seeing any silver linings uh, emerging from this pandemic in the wine world? Uh, it's a little hard to say as yet. Um it, the pandemic's been a disaster for a lot of people in the wine world. And I think it's, yeah. you, do, you don't want to no minimize that. I think let's assume there's a, a vaccine that comes about at some point and we go back to something like what we did before, you know, in terms of going to restaurants. I think that people will be so thrilled to be able to go back to restaurants that there's going to be a boom in people going out. And I think, uh, I think the silver lining will be getting over this and coming out of it, uh, uh, you know, okay. And ideally with not too many people, you know, being too much financial hardship. Um, I don't know if it's pushing any particular innovation in terms of wine at the moment. I can't, I can't see it myself, which doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, other than masks with straws, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. We're, we're not too sure about that. Yeah. You know, and, and you've got, actually, I will say one thing and it's not COVID related, but it is, it's somewhat related to it, which, you know, you've had the black lives matter movement. And I think that that's been, partly the unsettling everything's been so unsettled because of the pandemic that that's been even stronger than it would have been otherwise mm -hmm. i think there's an urgency and a need to do something and i think that, that those questions of diversity have certainly come up in the wine business in a way that they never have as strongly before and i do think that that is going to push change more rapidly in terms of diverse presence in wine in wine which which there needs to be i mean there's no question that there that wine needs to be more diverse and so i think that if you want a silver lining you know that's probably the silver lining is that that whether it's a combo platter of the social movement and the pandemic pushing the social movement into visibility that 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 would actually be a great thing and i think that will occur because of this 
Absolutely. Agree. So this has been so much fun. But before we leave, uh, how can our listeners find you? Oh, I'm, I'm fairly easy to find. Um, if you go to uh, on Instagram, I am at Ray Isle, uh, which is R-A-Y-I-S-L-E. Um, on Twitter, I'm Isle Wine. I'm um, floating around Facebook as well, like everybody else, the entire planet. And then at Food and Wine's website, uh, 15 years of random stuff I've written for Food and Wine. But, you know, if you basically Google Ray Isle Wine, you will you will get as much of me as you could possibly want. And if you, you know, end up in Brooklyn Heights randomly on an afternoon, you might see me walking around, of course. <laughs> so We hope to see you soon and um, have an opportunity to share a glass of wine or two sometime soon in person. Yes, or a cocktail. And or a cocktails. cocktail, for sure. Yeah, Negroni, yeah. and then moving on to the wine. That's ideal. I'm, sign me up. I'm ready. At a restaurant, great for that matter. Yeah, yes, indoor or outdoor, it doesn't matter. As long as we can we'll see take each other, it. great. Well, wonderful to talk to you guys. Same here. Alrighty. Thanks so much, Ray. See you soon. We love Ray. And now that you know what Ray is looking for, if you have a worthy story idea to share, reach out and mention that you heard him on our podcast. And of course, just remember Ray's advice and do's and don'ts. If this episode inspired you, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Leave a review and tell your friends and colleagues. In our next episode, we chat with Bao Ang, food and drink editor at Time Out New York. Tune in to listen to this omnivorous foodie and journalist who has his finger on the pulse of dining and cocktails in the Big Apple and learn how to tell your story in the most compelling way. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.